Greetings, folks, and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Season 2, Episode 10. I hope you've all been well since last time we talked, and if you listened to the last episode, which was my first back after about six months away, I hope you enjoyed it. For today's talk, what I think I'd like to do is continue a theme that, as I said last time, drew me back into making these, and that is the social or human response to the COVID-19 pandemic, which of course isn't over yet, even though society is finally beginning to open up again. Last time, I gave an explicitly Confucian response to the pandemic. What I'd like to do now is take a slightly more personal approach, which will also segue into a few thoughts on political philosophy, both Western and non-Western. It begins, though, with a random conversation in the woods. I'm fortunate to live right across the street from an absolutely wonderful urban woods, urban forest, Odell Park in Fredericton, which has roughly 16 kilometers, or if you're American, 10 miles, of woodland trails. And I spend a fair bit of time walking on these trails. In fact, it was the proximity of the park that was the main reason why I live where I live. But I digress. One day, or shall we say, once upon a time, about six weeks ago, I was wandering through the woods on one of my little solitary ambles when I saw a couple of people out for a walk themselves heading toward me up the hill. Fine, that happens all the time. But at one point, one of them asked the other, is that Roger? This, of course, made my ears perk up as I've become quite accustomed to being alone. When my daughter isn't with me, I'm mostly by myself, and I had just spent the previous year teaching, which is what I do for a living and I love it very much, from my living room, mostly speaking into a microphone or a camera. I'm just not around people all that much anymore. So when I heard my name and recognized that the speakers were in fact a couple of colleagues of whom I'm very fond, my reaction was quite instantaneous, and it really took me off guard. Part of me literally wanted to run up and hug them because we're all starved for human contact. I have a friend who literally hasn't had a hug in over a year. I give him one myself, but we live more than a thousand miles away. But that was only half of my response. The other half of my response was to immediately disappear into the bush. Part of me was simply craving human contact, especially human contact with people of whom I'm fond. But part of me had pretty much gone feral, and the sight of people made me want to run away. Not because I was afraid of them, but because I didn't know how to respond to them. And this not knowing how to respond became more apparent when we actually came close enough to have a conversation. And all of us were, although genuinely happy to see each other, and there was goodwill all around, sort of circling each other, maintaining distance, of course, is appropriate, and kind of not knowing exactly what to say or how to say it. I found that even my sense of tone in a natural, spontaneous conversation had gotten out of practice. And this is not an exaggeration. One of the books I teach is Robinson Crusoe. And the real account on which Robinson Crusoe is based is the memoirs of a person named Alexander Selkirk, who spent four years marooned on an island. And by the time he was rescued, 
he had pretty much lost the ability to speak. And other people who, were, who, who have been marooned on islands, which happened a lot during the Age of Sail, also on the rare occasions when they survived, did sometimes lose the capacity to speak. We lose a lot of our, what we take to be our natural human capacities when we're by ourselves. And I found, even though I'm of course accustomed to speaking to people online and basically talk for a living, that in that sudden, unexpected, spontaneous moment, I didn't know what to say, didn't know how to respond. The, the social gears in my brain had gotten rusty. They weren't turning as smoothly as they usually do. They could function, but their dysfunction was enough for me to realize, to, to viscerally feel that something wasn't quite right. And of course, as the three of us are all teachers, we naturally started talking about what things were going to be like in the fall. And we didn't know, and we still don't know. Most classes are going to be live, mine will. Larger classes will still not be live. So some people will be teaching at least some of the time in the mode that we did last year online. But the one thing we agreed on was regardless of the medium in which we're teaching, it's going to be a very strange year. We were all aware that it was strange talking to each other, although, as I said, it was pleasant, it was wonderful to actually have a, a friendly, spontaneous conversation. But when we parted company with, as I said, genuine, heartfelt goodwill, it was with an agreement that September is going to be weird. And then they continued their walk, and I continued my walk. And I spent the rest of my time as I was wandering the trails, thinking about what had just happened and, and what it means, what it says about the way that the pandemic has affected me specifically, but also maybe bringing to mind some things that we might learn collectively about who we are, about what we are, given the large-scale experiment in social isolation that we've been conducting for the last year and a half now. So here are some of my thoughts. The first thought was that the conception of human nature underlying so much of modern Western political and economic thought, namely the enlightenment notion of the lone, rational, self-interested individual as being the natural human being, the state of nature, that from which we begin all of our other speculations on human nature and on politics and on economics, is wrong. And not just wrong, but dangerously wrong. I've mentioned this before. This isn't a new thought to just the other day's wander in the woods. This is something that's been bothering me for a long time, but it really came into focus after my encounter with my colleagues and my realization of how being alone had affected me. Now, before I develop that any further, I should probably maybe go into a little bit of the foundational political philosophy that I am criticizing just in the name of openness, honesty, what have you. And while there are many thinkers that I could resort to, I'm going to keep things simple by looking at Thomas Hobbes, who is arguably the foundational thinker in modern Western political science, and someone to whom I think all subsequent political science certainly refers in some way. And just to be clear, I respect Hobbes, and I think he actually got a lot of stuff right, but he also got some really important stuff wrong. 
for some understandable reasons and maybe even some inevitable reasons. And I think I'd like to go into these as well, just again, for the sake of intellectual honesty. But first, what did old Tommy Hobbes have to say about human beings in a state of nature? He addresses the subject in chapter 13 of his book, Leviathan, published originally, I believe, in 1651, with the intention of establishing a philosophy or science of politics based upon what human beings actually are, rather than on some abstract notion of what they ought to be, which is how much political thinking had been done prior to his time. Not exclusively, Machiavelli had a lot to say in the matter as well, but what Hobbes tried to do was to set off politics or establish politics, a science of politics, based on an understanding of the human being as the human being can actually be observed. He was for a while the private secretary of Sir Francis Bacon, who was the first person to articulate the scientific method as is currently practiced in 1620. And it is that immersion in the nascent field of modern science that influences Hobbes's thinking. He is an empiricist. He wants to understand what we are, not, as I said, what we ought to be. And in the process of figuring that out, he is both astute and ruthless. And I, as I said, respect both of those attributes. So let's take a look at what he actually had to say. And for the sake of brevity, I will confine my comments to chapter 13. What I think I'll do is read a few passages, talk a bit about those, and then sum them up at the end of this segment and move on to whatever comes next. And for the record, I'm not scripting this, so I'm not entirely sure what will come next. For now, though, let's take a look at the beginning of chapter 13 of Leviathan, titled by Hobbes, of the natural condition of mankind as concerning their felicity and misery. And it kicks off like this. Nature hath made men so equal in the faculties of body and mind, as that, though there be found one man sometimes manifestly stronger in body or of quicker mind than another, yet when all is reckoned together, the difference between man and man is not so considerable as that one man can thereupon claim to himself any benefit to which any other man may not pretend as well as he. For, as to the strength of body, the weakest has strength enough to kill the strongest, either by secret machination or by confederacy with others that are in the same danger with himself. Okay, so what is, what is he saying here? He is making an argument for human equality. And he's making an argument for human equality based upon capacity. This is actually key to much political and, quite frankly, human rights thinking moving forward into the modern period. But as for what he bases our equality on, it is simply our capacity to kill each other. We're all equal because we are all a threat to each other, and thus we are all equally threatened by each other. And while our capacities certainly do differ they all fall within a sufficiently similar range to be considered together. This is not a bad argument, at least as far as it goes. That is, to take a popular expression, he's not wrong. And in fact, he's right about a fair bit. Regarding our intellectual capacities, he certainly does recognize that there are broad differences. 
But he also points out another piece of common ground in that we all prefer our own arguments to the arguments of others. That is, we all see our own arguments as the standard against which other people's arguments are to be measured. As Hobbes puts it, For such is the nature of men, that howsoever they may acknowledge many others to be more witty or more eloquent or more learned, they will hardly believe there be many so wise as themselves, for they see their own wit at hand and other men's at a distance. But this proveth rather that men are in that point equal than unequal. For there is not ordinarily a greater sign of the equal distribution of anything than that every man is contented with his share. And, while over the last year and a half we've all seen spectacular examples of the Dunning-Kruger effect, this is basically what Hobbes has just described. We're sufficiently satisfied, for the most part, with our own wisdom, with our own opinions, that we fail to recognize the superiority of other people's arguments. We don't know when we don't know, and we're happy not knowing because we think we know. And he continues... From this equality of ability ariseth equality of hope in the attaining of our ends. And therefore, if any two men desire the same thing, which nevertheless they cannot both enjoy, they become enemies. And in the way to their end, which is principally their own conservation and sometimes their delectation only, endeavor to destroy or subdue one another. That is, we are essentially alone in a context of limited resources, And when a resource is desired by multiple people but only available to one, animosity will arise. That is, we are in perpetual competition, both for our survival and often for our enjoyment. A logical consequence of this competition is what Hobbes describes as a state of war. And in our state of nature, in our natural state, Hobbes is convinced that we are in a perpetual state of what he describes as a war of everyone against everyone. Hobbes elaborates in what is probably the most famous passage from this book. Whatever, therefore, is consequent to a time of war, where every man is enemy to every man, the same is consequent to the time wherein men live without other security than what their own strength and their own invention shall furnish them withal. In such condition, there is no place for industry, because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, nor use for commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and, which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That is, life in a state of nature is definitively not life in a state of community. The two states are mutually opposed. Life in a state of nature is necessarily going to lead eventually to a state of perpetual war of all against all, in which attainments that are only possible through community are simply unattainable. Hobbes posits as well, because he of course rejects any supernatural authority as is perfectly appropriate, that in a state of nature, in this state of war of all against all, there is also no such thing as justice. That is, there's no standard by which we can measure the conduct of an individual to determine its ethical or moral worth relative to other individuals. As Hobbes puts it, to this war of every man against every man, this also is consequent. 
that nothing can be unjust. The notions of right and wrong, justice and injustice, have there no place. Where there is no common power, there is no law. Where no law, no injustice. He goes on a little later, it is consequent also to the same condition that there be no propriety, no dominion, no mine and thine distinct, but only that to be every man's that he can get, and for so long as he can keep it. And it is this understanding of human nature largely that goes on to influence other state of nature arguments regarding human beings coming out of the Enlightenment and to inform a great deal of modern political philosophy and economic philosophy, including the notion of the individual as the lone self-interested rational actor that I've mentioned before and have obliquely criticized but I'm only actually now addressing in this episode. And as for criticism, my principal criticism of it is that it's demonstrably wrong. It's just demonstrably fucking wrong. Here's why. Human beings don't come into the world alone. We come into the world in families, or at least with a mother. And said mother is never, or at least is very rarely, not already in community. That is the state of nature that Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and other state of nature type political thinkers posit is, on the one hand, admittedly a thought experiment. They know that people don't poof into the world in isolation. But on the other hand, it's a thought experiment that isolates the human being beyond a point to a smaller kernel than can actually be, I think, recognizably human. That is, it takes the reductive approach of the scientific method, which I think is a legitimate approach when approaching human nature, and reduces it too far, and thus in pointing to the thing so reduced as the essential human being, leaves out a great deal of what human beings always already are. Now, I said that some of Hobbes's mistakes, and here I've basically identified, broadly speaking, what I think they are, are inevitable or at least might be inevitable. So I should probably say a bit about that. Hobbes didn't know the evolutionary history of the human species. The origin of species was still a little more than two centuries away when he published Leviathan. The knowledge that human beings evolved from earlier already social primates and therefore have always lived in their state of actual nature, in community, is something that Hobbes could not possibly be aware of. So I'm not accusing Hobbes of faulty reasoning given what was available to him. I'm convinced rather that because he actually is working on the cutting edge of the scientific understanding of the human being at his time, that if he had known what we know now, he would have posited a very different state of nature. And with that very different state of nature, our political theories and our economic theories that now are so, I think, genuinely alienating to human beings would be quite different. This is obviously something I can't prove. It's just an intuition I have. But it does emerge from my intellectual respect for Hobbes and from an appreciation of the clarity of his thinking, as well as an understanding of the methodology he's using. And I think if he had access to the data that we now have access to, to all of the information that we've amassed in the intervening centuries, and using exactly the methodology that he uses, he would have to conclude that there is nothing 
less natural to a human being than isolation, than being alone, that we are first members of community and only then individual. And that this priority of community is hardwired into our nature in ways that thinkers of other traditions have actually recognized and that are borne out by studies in, for example, primatology. And here I might recommend a book by Franz de Waal called Our Inner Ape, to which I might refer a little later on or might save for another episode. In any case, the always already communal nature of human being itself is recognized in one of the thinkers that I've addressed before, and in fact referred to quite explicitly last episode, Mencius, the early Confucian thinker, whose story in section 2A6 of the work that bears his name posits another thought experiment, namely that, and I read this one at length last time, so I won't go into too much detail here, if any individual happens to see a child about to fall into a well, that our first impulses are going to be a sense of alarm, and that this impulse is prior to any sense of calculation of personal benefit, what have you. That is, the moral emergency, the situation of a moral emergency, demonstrates, I think, to the introspective person, and in ways that are borne out by observations of other primates, that our first impulse is not always self-interest. Rather, that our tendency to be only self-interested, to the exclusion of considerations of empathy, the well-being of others, is sociopathic and something that emerges as a result of culture, not something that is prior to it. That is, if we have a culture that rewards self-interest, we will produce self-interested people. And if we have a culture that rewards community spirit, we will produce people who have greater community spirit who are able, as Mencius says, to cultivate those seeds or those sprouts of virtues that are already present in their being as human. Well, the underlying political and economic philosophies of the modern West, particularly in North America, are radically individualistic to that caricatured, truncated sense that I was just mentioning. And this is especially true at a time of late corporate capitalism when literally individuals single individuals have the wealth more than the wealth of some nations at their disposal, simply because they have been able to exploit many, many people for a very long time and accrue to themselves the benefit of those people's work. But what does all of this have to do with our current historical moment and the response to and effect of the COVID-19 pandemic with which I began this episode? Well, Let's see. For starters, as I mentioned back at the beginning, I immediately became aware after saying goodbye to my colleagues of how unnatural it is for human beings to be alone for extended periods of time. We've known this for quite a while. This is why solitary confinement is categorized, in many nations at least, as a cruel and unusual punishment that is a form of torture. We need each other. That lone, self-interested, rational actor is only a part of the picture. Yes, we do have self-interest, and sometimes we are necessarily alone. But it's only when we're not alone that we can be fully human. This is where I think the Confucian vision of human nature, the Confucian theory of human nature, is, I think, in every way superior 
to the Enlightenment vision of human nature. The Enlightenment state of nature arguments begin with that lone individual. Well, Mencius does posit, as I've discussed already, a sort of state of nature argument as well, what the human being naturally is. But Mencius's state of nature argument begins with relations with other people, begins with people being people relative to each other. This, I think, is more accurate. That is, the Confucian understanding of human nature begins in community, a small, immediate community, and then on the one hand works down to the individual, and on the other hand works up to the broader community. This theory is based on our spontaneous feelings of empathy for each other and is resonant with what we've been able to observe from other mammals, particularly mammals to whom we're closely related, when we investigate such phenomena as empathy, which is not exclusively human. That is, it's prior to human. We grew out, we evolved out of species that were already capable of empathy. We know this by looking at chimpanzees who are also capable of empathy. I mean, there's this wonderful passage in De Waal's Our Inner Ape. It's towards the beginning, but I think I'd like to read it to you because it illustrates, I think, in a profound sense from our nearest evolutionary cousin, what we actually are or what we already were prior to being Homo sapiens and therefore also illustrates the absurd degree to which the Enlightenment account of human nature in its radical individualism, misunderstands what we are. DeWall writes as follows, The old age of these impulses is evident from the behavior of our primate relatives. Truly remarkable is the bonobo, a little-known ape that is as close to us genetically as the chimpanzee. When a bonobo named Cooney saw a starling hit the glass of her enclosure at the Twycross Zoo in Great Britain, she went to comfort it. Picking up the stunned bird, Cooney gently set it on its feet. When it failed to move, she threw it a little, but the bird just fluttered. With the starling in hand, Cooney then climbed to the top of the tallest tree, wrapped her legs around the trunk so that she had both hands free to hold the bird. She carefully unfolded its wings and spread them wide, holding one wing between the fingers of each hand before sending the bird like a little toy airplane, out toward the barrier of her enclosure. But the bird fell short of freedom and landed on the bank of the moat. Cooney climbed down and stood watch over the starling for a long time, protecting it against a curious juvenile. By the end of the day, the recovered bird had flown off safely. That is, even a chimp can pass the child in the well test with flying colors. And yet, particularly in North America, not just in the U.S., but unfortunately in Canada as well, we have people complaining about the minor inconvenience of wearing masks to prevent other people from dying. The degree of selfishness in that anti-mask position, the rhetoric that would have us believe that their freedom is being imposed upon, is apparently beneath the ethical dignity of a chimpanzee. And yet, there are millions of people in North American society who are behaving exactly that way, with no due regard for the well-being of their fellow citizens, their fellow human beings. Now, I would argue that this radical individualistic selfishness is a direct outgrowth of 
the Enlightenment argument for radical individualism. The position of, I've got mine, so fuck you. And as long as I can look after myself, I don't need to care about you. The understanding of human nature, that this is natural to us to be this self-interested, to be this selfish, can only, I think, be connected to that absurdly reduced truncation of the human being that we get out of the Enlightenment understandings of human nature, the Enlightenment state of nature arguments, which, as I said, while I believe honestly made and made with careful and and sometimes painstaking reasoning are necessarily incomplete because they were working with incomplete data. They didn't know about Cooney. They didn't know about our relationship to other primates or where we came from, as I said. But the vision of human nature we have, for example, in Confucianism, but not exclusively there. I'm just confining my comments to that school of thought because there's only so much you can address in a single episode. But that the understanding of human beings as always already communal in nature is something that many societies, most non-Western societies, do in fact understand, but that has been systematically excluded from Western political discourse for the last few hundred years, or at least from much Western political discourse. I don't want to make an absolute statement that I can't support. So, to bring it back to the pandemic again, what has this shown us? Well, it's shown us, I think, the fruits of radical individualism. It's, it's shown us that when we act only in self-interest, one, we can't solve our problems. Two, more of us suffer. Three, we fall short of what we actually can be. We fall short of even what a chimpanzee can be as an ethical being. And I think if we understood ourselves first not as individuals, but first as beings in relation to others, we wouldn't be having this problem right now. We wouldn't be plagued by the ma-freedom crowd, glorying in the ways in which they undermine public health. And when I say the understanding of us as beings in community already, I'm thinking of, of the Chinese character Ren. And there are two characters that go by this name in classical Chinese. One is the character for human being, which resembles a person walking. That is, the notion is not that we are a static thing, that we, that we have a permanent integral nature, but rather that in being human, we necessarily are active in the world. Being human is moving in the world, moving through the world. But the virtue, Ren, humanity, is a combination of that walking person ideogram and the character for the number two that is the virtue of being human the virtue of being humane the primary virtue of confucian ethics is only possible in relation to another person to be human in the moral sense is to be human to be actively engaged relative to other people and failing that we fail in actually being human and it's this failure in being human on the mass scale among the anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers that point, I think, toward a more profound sickness in our society than the virus actually is. The virus has simply shown us where and how we are sick. The sickness that is undermining us now is not the sickness of COVID-19. It's still a threat. Of course it is. And a great deal needs to be done to combat it. Of course it does. 
But the most serious threat now, the deeper sickness in our society, is the sickness of selfishness. The sickness that leaves someone, for example, such as Dr. Fauci, having to say, in probably his most famous quotation, I don't know how to explain to you that you should care for other people. From a Hobbesian point of view, that caring for other people is not a part of our nature. It's something we do as a social contract. From a Confucian point of view, it's something that is already present in our nature, and failure to do it, failure to at least recognize that impulse, is a failure to be fully morally human. What we have from the evidence of, as I said, primatology, and I've just skimmed across the surface of that right now. There's a whole lot more that I'd like to go into in another episode. But we have from that body of thought compelling evidence that Mencius was right and Hobbes was wrong, and that our first impulses toward other people are not that they are competitors that we need to either destroy or dominate, but that they are people with whom we are already in relationship, or at least with whom we can have relationship and toward whom we spontaneously have feelings of empathy, at least in situations of moral emergency. And if a pandemic isn't a moral emergency, I don't know what is. Now, insofar as a Hobbesian social contract and Confucian ethics both point toward a stable society governed by the rule of law, they're aimed at similar ends. But they begin with radically different understandings of what a human being is. And as I've said, and I don't need to go over again, the Hobbesian view, I think, is incomplete. In that sense, I think there's a great deal that a worldview such as Confucianism has to teach the West, has to teach North America particularly, at this moment in our history, when we are facing a crisis of selfishness, I think unlike any other we've ever faced before. And on that note... I think I should probably wrap it up for today. So, if you've made it this far, thank you for listening. I hope this has made sense. I hope something here has been useful to you. And I hope you'll tune in again. If you'd like to get a hold of me, of course, you can find me at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com, at the Eclectic Humanist Facebook page, or at echumanist on Twitter. And until next time, whenever that happens to be, as always, be kind to each other.